Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludy is entitled Law and Grace. In 21st century Christianity, there is one word that seems to awaken a revulsion and nausea quicker than a month-old Limburger cheese sandwich. It is the word law. Mention it in modern Christianity and you're labeled a legalist faster than you can say Methuselah. Nevertheless, the law is God's beautifully impossible mandate, which he created to reveal our deep and desperate need for the Messiah of God, Jesus Christ. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Law and grace. (laughs) Two of the most challenging dimensions of the Christian life are knowing how to deal with both of these. Oftentimes we exclude one to the promotion of the other. And especially as Christians in the New Covenant, we have a tendency to dismiss the concept of law because it just sounds evil and embrace this concept of grace, which I have to admit that grace is a more appealing and more suitable fixture to our lives than law. However, what you're going to see in this process is that grace only has meaning in relationship to law. And if we remove law, actually, we have nothing with which to celebrate. It's the fact that there is law that we even understand what good news is. So let's just begin to walk through this. The ancient Hebrew priest, God's legal minister of law and grace. The world has gone south. Something has happened, which we're going to walk through in a very basic sense. But something has gone wrong. God created man and woman, and he even said it was good. It was very good. And yet something has entered into the mechanism that has caused it to no longer function as it ought to function. Yet to mediate and to deal with this problem, which is man is on the wrong side of the law. In the New Testament, it oftentimes will use the terminology, we are under law. And when you're under law, that means the judgment or the just penalty for being under the law is in full effect over your life. And so God created a mediator. And it had to be from the lineage of Adam. It had to be a human that could function between God and his righteousness and his law and man and his unrighteousness and his law-breaking habits. And this character in the Hebrew culture was known as the priest. And so the priest was an intercessor. He was a gap filler between the two. And so I am referring to as the ancient Hebrew priest, God's legal minister of law and grace. Now, if you've been around this environment, you're going to know that every message that I give points towards one thing. Jesus and the cross. When I start talking about the ancient Hebrew priest, it stands between the righteous standards of the law of God and the unrighteous behavior of the men and women of this earth, you should immediately begin to have your mind drift towards Jesus because he is the fulfillment of this position. However, back in the Hebrew culture, they didn't know this. They didn't fully understand these things. They were just given an assignment by God. It's called the law. And the law stipulated how The Hebrew culture was supposed to function, but what it was stating is how God's economy functions. So that when 
Jesus came, we would recognize him. So let's deal with the concept of law. Now, I have a very simple definition here, even though it, looks, it takes up almost a whole screen. It's like, that's not simple. One or two words is simple. Well, believe me, this could have been pages upon pages. Now, let me, before we read the description that's on the screen, let me give you at least a brief overview of how law works. Law is not bad, especially when we're talking about God's laws. It doesn't mean that in human government there aren't bad laws. However, law in and of itself is merely the standard of righteousness. It's the behavior of righteousness. So law, in its most simple definition, would be the behavior of God. God behaves a certain way, and therefore, to participate in God's presence, this is what you must be like. And that would be the law. The law of God stipulates his order, the way things must function in God's system. But law is the enunciation of Godness. It's him. It is his behavior, or what in the Bible is called his righteousness. Righteousness being the way God is, or another way of saying it, is the way we ought to be. We ought to be like God. However, if you've taken any time uh, to study your life in any depth, you would know that you are not as God is, and you do not behave as God behaves. You are called unrighteous. And so something is entered into the mechanism known as humanity and has distorted things because that isn't how God set it up originally. But something's gone south. So here's another simple definition for law. That which sets forth God's eternal decree of what is perfect behavior, right action, and just consequence. Now there's law isn't just the right behavior. It's the right action to the wrong behavior. If anyone ever violates this law, then the law also stipulates that which must happen as a consequence. And that would still be part of the law. It is righteousness. Righteousness isn't just the right behavior. It is also the right behavior towards wrong behavior. So righteousness is how you handle the right living and how you handle that which is not righteous. The law covers all the boundaries of that. So more simply... That which reveals sin. Now that's sort of a negative, casts a negative hue over the law. But I want you to recognize that that is actually one of the most beautiful attributes of the law. You see, the law clarifies where we are against it, where we are wrong. If you do not have the law, you don't recognize that you're spiraling out of control and disobedience. The law actually reveals the fact that something is wrong inside of you. There are many of us in here that know that there are certain years of our life where we lived totally fine, away from the law of God, did not know that we were actually living in great sin and disorder, and our life was headed to hell and over the cliff. We couldn't see it. But law, which is the behavior of God, the righteousness of God, somehow entered into our awareness, and we began to recognize, whoa, I am not as I should be. Something is wrong in here. And God goes, bingo. You see, unless you know something's wrong, guess what? You won't cry out for the solution to the wrong. Which, by the way, is Jesus Christ. And so when we get... Oh, I had one more thing here. More simply, that which reveals sin. Look at this bottom one. The schoolmaster. Just like a teacher reveals ignorance in and through 
teaching you knowledge and shedding light on subjects. And what does that do? It shows you, boy, I didn't know anything. Yeah, but the teacher is acquainting you with the fact that there is a problem, and that's what the law does. It reveals the problem to lead us unto the solution. That's the law's job. Now we have the word grace. Grace is a very popular word today in Christianity. However, it's oftentimes misused. Because grace is a manifold or multifaceted concept, but it's basically the work of God on our behalf to carry out the impossible errands of God within us. In other words, you can't do it, so you need grace to do it for you. You couldn't save yourself from the penalty of your unrighteousness. So guess what? Grace intervened. You cannot live on a daily basis. You cannot overcome sin, those temptations that have always gotten you down. You can't do it. So what do you live by? You live by grace, God's labor on your behalf. So here's another way of saying it. Grace, God's loving, and you notice I put in parentheses, and legal. This message is going to deal with legalities. I know for those of you that aren't interested in law, this is like, oh, what a a burdensome message this will be. Well, I don't think so. I think if you can catch the idea that the kingdom of heaven is based on a legal framework, you'll actually fall in love with law. We may have, may have, might have a few lawyers that come out of this message. God's loving and legal response to the failure on man's part to demonstrate perfect behavior, right action, and the measures God has taken to rescue us from the just consequences of our error. Have you ever had the thought that God is God? Therefore, if he truly loves us, why doesn't he just come down, lift us out of this muck, and bring us to heaven? Why in the world doesn't he just settle all? All he has to do is just say, I forgive you. He didn't even need to send his son and go through all this drama. He's God. And God is just. And God will not violate his law. Did you just hear that? Why? Because his law is his nature. He cannot lie, scripture says. Why? Because he cannot lie. There is no darkness in him. There is no deceit in him. He is truth. It's actually part of his character. He is truth. Truth is that which is without lie. So he says, I cannot lie. I cannot violate my nature. Get this. I cannot violate my law. God's law was transgressed by us. But he will not violate his law in rescuing us. He must fulfill his law in rescuing us. So that's part of the great challenge that we will see unfurl. So God's loving and legal response to the failure on man's part to demonstrate perfect behavior, right action, and the measures God has taken to rescue us from the just consequences of our error. So more simply, that which rescues from sin. Remember the previous one, law? That which reveals sin. Grace is that which rescues us from sin. Uh, Look at my final little notation on the bottom there. Jesus. Remember the law? The final notation was schoolmaster. What does a schoolmaster teach you about? What does it lead you towards? What's it a big road sign pointing at? Jesus. Grace. That which can rescue you from the sin that the law has revealed. The law is working to bring you to Jesus. Law can't save you. Jesus can. It's the whole Bible in a nutshell. Matthew 5, think not that I am come, this is Jesus talking, think not that I am come to destroy the law and the prophets, or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. 
For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. You know how many of us are ready to just ditch the law, cut the Bible in half, and get rid of that Old Testament? We don't want that. However, that which we are wanting to dispose of is that which leads us to a clear understanding of our need for that which is in the New Covenant. If you don't understand the Old Covenant, you don't understand your despair of soul. You don't understand that there are grievous consequences for sin. You do not understand the exceeding sinfulness of sin. As a result, you don't understand because there's been no schoolmaster which has led you unto the glory of Jesus Christ. Grace only makes sense in context of the Old Testament. The term that we'll oftentimes see in the New Testament is the term under the law. And it's not a good thing to be under the law. And I'll explain what this means. There's also another statement in the New Testament that says under grace. And we want to be under grace. Okay, but that's the new covenant. But to understand, you know that covenant is a legal transaction? You know that almost every term we know of in Christianity, justification, uh, redemption, these are legal terms. Even reckoning would be a legal concept. These things are legal. They are binding in a court of law. So under the law, now we know that 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 what things soever the law says, it says to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Well, that doesn't sound like a very hope-filled scripture, does it? That every mouth may be stopped. Why? That everyone would know their guilt before God. What good is this? Why would I want to know my guilt? Because if you don't, you have no solution for it. It's when you know that you have need that you cry out for the salvation from it. God must awaken us, legally awaken us, to the fact that we are on the wrong side of justice. We are under the law. We are under the penalty of the law. There is a just consequence for sin, and it is called death, outer darkness, eternal separation from the living God. It's just because God is just, and God cannot fix the law to fix your problem. He must fulfill the law to fix your problem. But you must recognize that you're on the wrong side of it. The term in Scripture is you are under it. You are under its consequences. The law says this, and guess what? Oops, you messed up. You may not have even known that you did mess up, but you messed up. And there's a just consequence, whether you know it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, there's a just consequence for violating the law. And as a result, gulp, it's called the law of sin and death. You know what that states? The law of sin and death. If you sin, you die. You know what law we're under? We sinned, we died. We're all under that law. And there's no hope to get out from under that law unless there is some legal remonstrance, some legal intervention on behalf of God to change the situation that we are in. Which is why grace only makes sense in light of the law of sin and death. The law of sin and death is justice. It's not bad, it's justice. Its consequences are bad for us, but it's justice. You sin, you die. Remember, right back in the book of Genesis, uh, you eat of this tree and you disobey my word, and you will surely die. It's called the law of sin and death. 
And what are we all under? The law of sin and death. It's not a comfortable place to be. In fact, it's rather miserable. However, we can be perfectly content under this law if the law is never shown to us, if it's never revealed to us, and we never are convicted of the fact that we have violated God's law, and therefore, we have died. If we don't recognize this, we, I mean, we will eventually, someday, but we will actually pass through this life without ever crying out for the solution to our problem. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. So, if you do not continue in all the book of the law to absolute perfection, you are actually under a curse. Because it says it. That's part of the stipulation right there of the law. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continues not in all things. You can fulfill 99% of them, but if there is 1% that you fail to perform in all things, then you are under the law of sin and death. I don't know if any of you are starting to feel that crushing weight upon your soul. Like, how? I can't live that way. I can't perform all things which are written in that book. Maybe a few of them, but God, you need to show mercy. No, the law doesn't specialize in mercy. The law specializes in showcasing the standard of righteousness. It says, this is what you have to do. And then all of us stare back and go, I can't. He goes, finally, you recognize that. You can't do it. You know how many of us think we can? Hey, God, I'm doing fine. I can't believe you think of judging me. Look at all the good I've done. As a result, it's a number one statement in all of our souls that we have not yet seen what the law must explain to our souls and that we have violated it. That we have violated the holy, righteous standard of Almighty God. And as a result, we are under the law of sin and death, and that is a just penalty. It is just, it is right, and it is appropriate. And that penalty is not just a little slap on the wrist. It is known as death, which is not just death of the physical body, but death of the spiritual man as well. It is eternal separation, because justice never sleeps. Justice is eternal because God is eternal. Therefore, God's justice lasts for eternity. You do not want to be under the law. The balloon. All right, now I have a little illustration here. We'll see how well I can do. A balloon. A balloon as a balloon ought to be. You know, nice and sort of bulbous. Uh, I don't know if blue has to be the way a balloon ought to be, but... A balloon ought to hold air, and guess what? Keep its air, okay? And that's just what a balloon is there for. It doesn't have a lot of other purposes beyond that. Now, there's a simple law for a balloon, and that is stay away from sharp objects. If a sharp object is to ever cut into this balloon, the law of balloons would state that it will lose its purpose. It will lose its perfection. It will no longer be righteous because there is a way a balloon ought to be. And you're sort of looking at it. Now, this balloon could be blown up a little bigger. But in a sense, this is a righteous balloon. Okay? In accordance with the laws of balloons, it is in right standing. Okay? Now, what would sin be like? Sin would be sort of like eating of that fruit from the tree. It's a disobedience. You see, this balloon got near a sharp object. And sharp objects, God makes it very clear in his law. The law of the balloon, that's, it's the law of cut and die. 
if you are cut, well, then you will surely die. And so this balloon, it was pleasing to the eyes, you know, the, the sharp object. You know, it's a strange thing. But this balloon suddenly lost its value to me. Isn't that amazing? This balloon, which was nice and perfect and round and right, because it disobeyed the law of the balloon, it suddenly has no value. The way it used to be valued, no longer is it valued. You know that there was a breath inside of this balloon? When it was as it ought to be, there was a breath inside of it, a life actually inside of it. But the moment it transgressed the law, you'll notice that two things happened. Legally, it is now under the law of cut and die. You get cut, you get thrown into the garbage. It's that simple. Because you have no more purpose to house the breath. Because your whole purpose was to house the breath. Now look at you. You violated the most simple law of the balloon. Sorry to tell you this, balloon. But you are without hope in this world. You are separated from the breath forever. Okay, this balloon has an issue, doesn't it? Now, let's see if I can get that other, uh, yes, this one. Now, this is my symbol of, this is a balloon that is cut, just like that one, okay, but that one was tied. So, the interesting thing about this is this is a balloon that is living in disobedience, okay? It has disobeyed, and as a result, it is under the law of cut and die, or for our sakes, the law of sin and death. Okay, now watch this. This is very fascinating. Here, I can give that back to you. Thanks, Aaron, for your help. Watch this. What if breath did want to blow into this? Doesn't that sound like us? That's us attempting to manufacture the rightness of a balloon, the way a balloon ought to be, yet we do not have the ability to even hold breath. You see, legally, we are good for nothing but the garbage dump. Legally speaking, we have transgressed. There is no rightful claim that a balloon has that it can go to some maker and say, hey, you fix me. No, we don't have a rightful claim to that. Technically speaking, we violated the balloon maker's law, and we are on the far side of it. God made it clear. You get near the prickly things, the cutting things, and guess what? You will fall under the law of cut and die. Legally speaking, we are good for nothing but the garbage heap. And guess what? It's not just that we can't hold breath. Did you know that we're cut off from the breath? How much hope does this balloon have of becoming a right balloon as long as it is slit open and no one is breathing into it? Now, this is us right here. You know what's amazing about the gospel? God so loved us that he gave his only begotten son, which we could call the perfect balloon in this. I know it's a massive limiting of who he is. But he gave the perfect balloon that we might, in entering, let me have that other balloon here. The perfect balloon, without cut, without any violation. It is not under, it's born in a system that is under the law. But guess what? It fulfills the law in that system. And as long as it fulfills the law and does not get near the cutting devices, guess what? It maintains life. And therefore, because of the Hebrew system in which Jesus was born, if a man can stand in the position of a priest, 
on behalf of others that have given up their life in disagreement and disobedience to the law of the balloon. This balloon has legal position to help those balloons. It's called the position of the priest. In fact, our Jesus is known as the high priest, the great high priest. The one who stood in the gap, followed and fulfilled perfect legal righteousness, and as a result became the habitation for us as balloons. Now, ideally, if I could do this right, we find our life by being brought into this balloon. Now, inside this balloon, if you look close at us, we still have a slit in our side. As a result, we are still a piece of junk, if you want to look at it that way. However, we are being made whole. We are being justified by being brought into his legal righteousness. He is as he ought to be. And therefore, we can actually come unto the Father, though we be cut Though we be in disobedience, in his righteousness. And what does the Father do to us? The Father repairs us in Christ Jesus. The Father restores us, seals us up. And then what does he do? Inside this balloon, blows his breath back into us. The only right we have to get near the breath is to be in Christ, who never violated the breath, who never transgressed. This is a legal statement. So what we would see technically is this huge balloon that is always growing bigger, and all of us being put into this balloon, and though we are imperfect when we're put in, we are being healed, we are being restored, and now breath is entering into us, and we're little balloons in the making to be likened unto the big balloon in which we live. Okay, now that's an imperfect metaphor. But what I wanted to give that for is the concept of showing you how legalities work in our faith. Legalities are what the cross is all about. It was a legal action that God took. So a balloon, the balloon of law, the balloon, the balloon law of cut and death. A cut balloon is a dead balloon, no longer able to be a balloon as it should, unable to hold the breath of God and worthy only of the garbage dump. The balloon, of, the balloon law of grace. A perfect balloon filled with the breath of God, untouched by the cutter, a balloon as a balloon should be, has made himself the vehicle in which the cut balloons can now find both righteousness and breath. You see, it's not just that they are just legally restored. See, we could just be floppy balloons stuck inside of a bigger balloon. Instead, we are not just given his righteousness, but we are given the breath. We are made whole to now become carrying devices of his life the way we originally were. Jesus, the great high priest. Now look at the definition I give to this underneath. The upholder of the law and the giver of grace. You know that Jesus did not violate the law when he came. He upheld the law. He says that he fulfilled the law. He didn't trash it. He fulfilled it. He didn't get gouged and you know, lose all his air and say, hey, I'm right with you there, guys. Yeah, we're all cut balloons, but I'm here to identify with you. He identified with us in our balloonness, but he did not identify with us in our sinfulness. The reason he has legal authority and power to stand on our behalf is because he was without sin. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, look at this, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. 
Jesus intervened. Now, what the, some of the interesting things we're going to deal with is how God had to accomplish this. Because a lot of us oversimplify it, and we don't understand how law works. And so we figure, well, God could do this. He could have done this. Why did he do this? It's because he is God, and he is holy, and he is perfect, and he is just, that he did it the way he did. Jesus, the upholder of the law, and most of us don't think of it that way, but Jesus actually upheld the law. He said, hey, this is inviolable. You must keep the law. Now, could you imagine if I said that to all of you? You must keep the law. And what would your immediately, immediate thoughts be? A oh, legalist. I've seen these kind before. Yeah, they're all about skirt length and, you know, uh, all sorts of other little details about not cussing and not smoking. I don't want to be in a church like that. And here Jesus comes down and he says, hey, guys, you need to keep the law. Go and sin no more. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you can have no part in the kingdom of heaven. These are all legal terms. The Pharisees are the most righteous in the land, all external. They looked the part. However, Jesus says, hey, unless it exceeds that. You know what that would sound like to a Jew? Unless it exceeds that? What? I can't do this. Yeah, the law is a schoolmaster, isn't it? It's leading all of the Hebrew nation to him. You can't do it, can you? I can. He is the one that did perform the legal righteousness. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Righteousness is a legal term. That we might be made right with the law in him. Remember the balloon? The balloon did it right. For he hath made him, who was the perfect balloon, to be sin for us, which is a legal action, which we will walk through in just a second, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. I know that this is probably an obvious statement, but God cannot lie, steal, or murder. However, I want you to recognize that in the church of Jesus Christ today, there is actually confusion on this point. Because whereas we know that he shouldn't do these things, we're actually not completely positive that he doesn't do these things. Why? Because he's God. That's the same argument we make for why he should do all this different. He's God. He can do anything he wants. So he could technically lie, steal, or murder. And I'm here to tell you, God cannot lie, steal, or murder. But don't take my word for it. This then is the message which we have heard of him and declare unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Anything the law would clarify as being outside the boundaries of his perfect righteousness, he has no parts with, no fellowship with, no communion with it. The blamelessness of Jesus Christ. Now I'm going to build a legal, legal argument for you here. Says of Jesus Christ, he knew no sin. In him was and is no sin. He did no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He was and is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. He was and ever is the Lamb of God, without blemish and without spot. 
He did nothing amiss. Certainly he was a righteous man. The prince of this world had nothing, no legal grounds of condemnation, I added that uh, parenthetical statement, in him. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He was just. You ever heard the term justification? Where does that come from? The just one. He was just. As a result, he's able to justify us. That's a statement of Jesus. Now, most of you are probably not audacious enough to take me on on that point. Jesus was without sin. I know it's rather incredible, but it's fact in Scripture. That is our king who came to do the rescuing work. Now, let's take it one step further. We know that that's Jesus, the full expression of the Father. Jesus was the full expression of the Father. When we attempt to incriminate our God and to put guilt upon him for behavior that he makes very clear in Scripture, I will not touch that behavior. It is actually one of the most dastardly doctrinal deeds we could ever do. The full expression of the Father. Listen to this in John 14. Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. If you had known me, you should have known my Father also. And from henceforth you know him and have seen him. Well, how in the world do we know him and have seen him? Philip says that very question. Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father and it will suffice us. Jesus says unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Now remember what I just did. I went through the blamelessness of Jesus Christ, which, by the way, the entire gospel hinges upon it. And now what am I linking Jesus' blamelessness to? The Father. You see, Jesus is the full expression and manifest expression of the Father. Believe thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwells in me, he does the work. Who did the, the work of purity? Who did the work of righteousness? Who did the work that was without sin? It was the Father. This is his work. For it pleased the Father that in him, Jesus, should all fullness dwell. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So who's dwelling in Jesus? Who's being revealed through Jesus? The fullness of the Godhead. You want to know how the Godhead behaves? Look at Jesus. There is no discrepancy in this. We have our doctrinal nuance that tries to pin certain behaviors on God. Because we are looking at it through a limited lens. However, God himself creates the lens in Jesus. We look at the nature of the Father in and through the Son. And Jesus himself clarifies how the Father behaves. If there's any confusion on the matter, listen to Jesus. Jesus is the creator. Now, Jesus isn't just a man who was born and who was filled with the fullness of the Godhead. He was the creator. So though he did dwell with us as a balloon, if you will, he was God. And he was before all things. He is known in John 1, he's described as the creator. All things were made by him, speaking of Jesus. And without him was not anything made that was made. So the very creator God is the very one who is now revealing the nature of God the Father. He is not changed. It says of God that there is no shadow of turning in him. 
God is the same, always. And what we see in Jesus is what we see in the Creator. The Creator, when He created, was without sin. The Creator, when He created, was without darkness. He is not evil. God is not a sinner. God does not participate or have any fellowship with sin. He bears the nature of righteousness. Where does darkness come from? Oh, why in the world does Eric need to ask that question out loud? That's a question you just sort of ask in your private moments. You don't put it up on a keynote and then move on. Where does darkness come from? Listen to this scripture if you want to really uh, have smoke come out of your ears. By the way, this is the word of God. It is 100% accurate. I form the light and create darkness. Whoa, did, did he just say that? I make peace and create evil. What? What? Uh, I, the Lord, do all these things. Now you're thinking, Eric's got himself in a pickle. Well, God put me there. I didn't come up with that. We do not define our doctrines based on our wants, our desires. We base it upon the revealed word of God. The word for create in this situation is a word called bara, which means to cut, to carve out, to fashion a thing, to give rise to, to separate out a thing through cutting. So imagine that God has all his territories. Well, what this means is he created a section because of the evil that had entered the world in and through sin and disobedience, and he cut out an area and a space and a jurisdiction called darkness so that he could be, get this, separated from it. That's actually what the word is, to cut, to carve out, to fashion a thing, to give rise to, to separate out a thing through cutting. Now look at this one. Thou makes darkness, and it is night, wherein all the beasts of the forest do creep forth. The word for makes is sheath. To put, set, or place something, to station a point or fix a thing in a designated place with authority. To impose a will over something to ensure it is properly set and stays set. Darkness, you can have no part with me. So he borrows and sheaths a territory known as darkness. And he says this is separate from light. And he separated the light from the darkness. Far be it from God, it says in Job, that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. Yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Men do therefore fear him. He respects not any that are wise of heart. Legal pillar number one. God is the king of righteousness. Now, you're going to notice that the cross hinges upon the legal pillars that we are going to enunciate here. I'm going to go through nine of them. Legal pillar number one, God is the king of righteousness. In other words, everything that is right, everything that is just, everything that is as it ought to be, he rules over it. That's his jurisdiction. Light. There is no sin in him, and he did not create sin. I know that that's quite a statement there. However, it's just a statement of fact. God does not violate his law in order to create a drama. God makes his law clear and reveals the penalty, the just penalty for violating his law. And when that law is violated, then 
the law will be enacted and the punishment will be set forth. The evil twin theory, declaring God the chief architect behind sin. I don't know if any of you have ever heard this, but whether or not they would call it the evil twin theory, that's what I'm calling it. It is theorized by some that God, in order to reveal his nature, created the construct of sin, darkness, rebellion, and moral sickness. And he built a powerful character named Lucifer to do his bidding. This evil twin could then perpetrate evil, but God could claim innocence. Sort of a nice working relationship. He could do the evil, and God could claim innocence. Because it was his twin that did the deeds and not him. God made sure that Lucifer was not more powerful than him. But he didn't think through the fact that to create an emissary of evil is just the same as perpetrating the evil deeds himself. It's like creating a robot of death that wreaks havoc on the people of New York City only to then fly in as a superhero and save the day by destroying the very robot that you originally programmed and set out to do the destroying. You can claim that you didn't destroy the people of New York City and that you only sought to rescue them, but in actuality you were the one that created the problem that you then solved. In this scenario, God is ultimately responsible for death, for suffering, for disease, for eternal torment, and for every cruel and hateful thing done in the heavens and on earth. The evil twin theory is untenable with both the law of God, the nature of God, and the revelation of God regarding the origin of sin. God would be justly deserving of eternal separation from himself due to his perpetration and violation of his very law. If I created a bomb that then detonated, then I would be responsible for the bomb and its detonation. We are responsible for our actions, and guess what? The cross is all about that. The entirety of the cross is us being held accountable and responsible. However, Jesus took our position, our guilt, our wrath, Our just punishment was placed upon him. Jesus rebukes the notion of an evil twin. And Jesus knew their thoughts and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. God is not inspiring the enemy over here and then fighting against the enemy over here. That is a kingdom divided against itself and it shall not stand. Does a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Can the fig tree, my brethren, bear olive berries, either of vine, figs, either of vine, figs? So can no fountain both yield salt, water, and fresh. God does not yield both sin and righteousness. He is the king of righteousness. The devil sins of himself. Jesus again answers this question in John 8. He says, you are, the, you are of the father, your father the devil. And the lusts of your father you will do. This is Jesus speaking to the Jews. He calls them, he says, they are of the father of the devil, and the lusts of their father they will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, speaking of Lucifer, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. This is what Jesus says of the devil. When he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own. In other words, that lie is coming from him, not from me. For he is a liar and the father of it. He is the originator, the progenitor. He is the paternal beginning of lies. That's what Jesus says right there in John 8. The scissor-cut kingdom, the jurisdiction of darkness. And God saw the light, that it was good. And God divided the light from the darkness. Scissors. 
God created the dominion of darkness in order to separate that which is dark from that which is light. He separated that which is righteous from that which is unrighteous. He gave parameters, measurements, jurisdiction to the realm of darkness. But he didn't sin. He didn't author sin. He never violated his moral law in setting forth the dominion. Moreover, he actually preserved his perfection, his holiness, and his righteousness in dividing out this realm and making it separate. Therefore, in creating darkness, or the realm of darkness, he reinforced his, his altogether otherness from it. The fact that he responded to darkness so vehemently and so purposely shows his altogether otherness and difference from darkness. When darkness emerged, he sequestered it. He separated it out. Now, God has all territory, the eternal territories of God. And so guess what? God does have jurisdiction ultimately over this kingdom of darkness. Do you know that the kingdom of darkness is known for its lawlessness? It has violated the law and maybe has no order. It is without form and void. It is a mess. truly is. It's called the kingdom of darkness. There is no light in it. There's no love in it. There's no God in it. He is separate from it. However, he knows everything that happens in it. Not his, with his manifold presence or his manifest presence, but with his knowing presence. He knows all things. He knows what's happening in the kingdom of darkness. It's under his jurisdiction. But he is not responsible for what is taking place in it. However, he is over it. In other words, it's part of his territory. It's scissor cut out of his whole territory, separated from him. Guess who rules over, ultimately, the kingdom of darkness? God. However, it is within a a jurisdiction, and he will not, as you will soon see legally, violate another jurisdiction. God has jurisdictional right, but he will not overcome your life and force you to your knees to cry out to God be the glory. There are jurisdictional boundaries, and as a result, God respects them. Legal territory is what we're going to call it. God established law. He enunciated his perfect righteousness as he is, or as one ought to be. That's perfect righteousness. And stipulated consequence. Law is light, clear, without blur, without shadow. And to violate and rebel against the law, to be a lawbreaker, is to choose the consequence and judgment of the righteous law, which, as we all maybe have heard, is death or separation from God. It means to choose darkness forever, to separate from light eternally. Darkness is the realm of the lawbreaker. It is the jurisdiction prepared for the eternal beings receiving the just punishment of their disobedience. Why did God create hell? Why did God? That's part of darkness. Most people would say that darkness is in the earth. That's what most people would say after studying scripture. It's like it's actually a place. It's a place. Hell is a place. Darkness is a place. There's actually something called outer darkness. There seems to be shades of darkness. Right now, the world is in darkness. And yet it's not outer darkness. There is still redemption possible in this territory. However, once you pass out of this territory, you are cast into outer darkness. And there is therefore now no light possible to shine ever into your soul. Legal pillar number two. Sin is legal forfeiture of life. You sin, you die. That's what God said from the beginning. You sin, you die. He who sins is legal property of the scissor-cut kingdom. So if you die, where do you go? You actually legally transfer from a kingdom of light unto a kingdom of darkness, and you become legal property of the dark realm. 
or the kingdom of darkness, a scissor-cut kingdom. You are legally transferred into the authority of that kingdom because you have no right to be in God's kingdom. The reason it was set up is for darkness. God did not set it up for us. That wasn't the intent. He set it up for hell, for Lucifer, for his cronies. However, when we were tempted and brought in, we then were removed into the same kingdom, the same territory. The rights and the power of the devil. Understand how the jurisdiction of the devil works. For whatever reason, I, when we did the gospel video, there were certain things that Eric Ludi said that could have been said better. It was a, I don't know, 21-minute little thing that was said during a Tuesday morning, I think, uh, at Ellerslie. It wasn't intended to be in some video that went around the world. However, Eric made the statement that the enemy has legal right to harm and harass us. And you know what? I should have said more to clarify what I meant by that, but hey, that wasn't the intent to try and communicate to some global audience. But guess what? It's true! It is still true, though it trips up a few people to say, what? The enemy does not have legal right? Well, let's walk through it. Understand how the jurisdiction of the devil works. Sin crouching is a lion. This is right back in Genesis. If you do well, God's speaking to Cain, who killed Abel. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, if you violate the law, sin lies at the door, and its desire is for you. But you should rule over it. Sin is crouching. Sin is actually given a personification in this picture because sin is not just a concept. It is an authority which flows from Satan himself. So Satan, most of us wouldn't describe him as sin, but he is. He is the force or the personality behind sin. It has an agenda. It has a personality. It has a will. It does. And its will is to destroy you. It seeks whom it may devour. It is crouching at the door waiting for you to violate the law. If you do well, you will be accepted. If you do not do well, sin lies at your door. This is a legal transaction. The legal position of sin. Sin is both a personality known as Satan as well as a legal disposition of body and soul. A child adopted, which I'm describing here in parentheses, a child adopted by the father of darkness and now bearing the spirit of their evil father and sharing in his awful destiny. Now, most of us wouldn't consider ourselves adopted uh, by the enemy because adoption is such a pleasant concept. However, that's exactly what it is. It's a legal transaction of paternal authority. Your father is the devil. When you are not living in the light, your father is the chief of darkness. And so as a result, and that's very clear in scripture actually, it just sounds awkward. Your father, the devil. By the way, I'm not the one that came up with that. Jesus answered them, verily, verily, I say unto you, whosoever commits sin is the servant of sin. By the way, that is a legally binding statement. If you commit sin, you become a servant or a citizen or a slave to another realm, which, by the way, is not God's realm. It is the kingdom, the scissor-cut kingdom of darkness, and you will become a servant of that operation. And then it says, you do that which you have seen with your father. Well, what father are they talking about? You do the deeds of your father. If God were your father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and came from God. 
Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. What father is he talking about? You are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father you will do. This is legal. I don't want you to get all creeped out and grossed out about it. It's like, I do not have a father. It's the devil. You know, the church already has a bad reputation for making people feel uncomfortable. We start going around and passing around the statement that your father is the devil. Could you imagine standing on a street corner? Your father is the devil! Uh, Very inviting, isn't it? Still true. If you live in sin, you are a servant of sin. Sin is the operation of the kingdom of darkness, which is ruled by the prince of darkness himself, a.k.a. Lucifer, also known as the devil. And he has legal authority, which in historical concept, especially in Roman Empire, it was called adoptio, which is a legal right, a paternal right, and you hold your children almost as property. That's actually the very context this is spoken in. It is legal property, fatherhood, over a life, which means you have the dictatorial position to sell them, to make them slaves, do whatever you want. And guess what? He's not a very good father. His intent is evil. From the beginning, murder is in his heart. He wants to destroy us. The thief has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And that is our legal parentage. Legal pillar number three. Sin is a legal decree of adoption unto Satan. I know that sounds terrible, but we might as well get the legalities out on the table. The devil has paternal fatherly authority over all who sin. He that commits sin is of the devil. For the devil sins from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That through death, speaking of Jesus, he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. So who has the power of death? Satan. You know that he has the power of death? What? Now, what is the result of sin? Death. The law of sin and death says you sin, you die. Who has the power of death? Well, it says it right there. It's the devil. It's legal authority. He has jurisdictional right. He says, hey, that's mine. They violated the law. And he has right legal claim. And you can say, God, don't be bullied around by that. He wasn't. Remember the cross. He crushed the head of the serpent. He wasn't bullied, even though we oftentimes will look at it and say, wait, God, why aren't you doing something? He already did. I send thee to open their eyes and to turn thee from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. What? Yeah, he has power. And that's where we're at. We're in darkness and we're under the power of Satan, but we need to be turned unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. This is actually a quotation of what Jesus said to Paul. This is his commission. And Jesus says, I send thee to open their eyes. Paul is only just referring to it when he's speaking before a Roman uh, leader. I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God. That they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, 
according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. You know, there's a spirit that works in the children of disobedience, which is the spirit of the prince of the power of the air. What spirit is alive within us when we live in disobedience? It's not the spirit of God. It's the spirit of the prince of the power of the air, which is, by the way, Satan. He has a spirit. It is a counterfeit of what God intends. Our life is in this world. That's where our satisfaction is, which is why when we walk according to the course of this world, we are satisfied with worldly things. That's all the enemy has is base entertainment. He cannot access the pleasures of heaven, so he brings us down into it. But it's the spirit of the devil, and he desires to debase us and to destroy us and to continue in a lawless manner within us because if we sin, we die. And if he can keep us trapped in that debasement, we are dead men walking. Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, Death has no more dominion over him. What does that mean? That means death did have dominion over us. You see, we were under the dominion of death. It's a legal, authoritative chamber. We were controlled. Death had rulership over us, rightful claim to our lives. What did Jesus do? Knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. Wow. When you begin to recognize your position in Christ, it gets very exciting. Legal pillar number four, a singular sin equates to eternal judgment. I know that sounds unjust to us, but that's the statement of fact. That's darkness. Just one little cut in a balloon leads to the garbage dump. That's all it takes to remove the breath and to remove the purpose of the balloon. That's all it takes. You must be a perfect balloon. Do not get near those scissors. They'll destroy your purpose. They'll ruin you, and you'll ruin you forever. It's not like a balloon gets on the trash dump and then a 1,000 years later becomes a good balloon. That ruin is forever. Once ruined, always ruined in accordance with the law. There must be legal intervention on our part. All who are dead, all who sin are dead even while they live, for they are under the law of sin and death, and thusly, are daily reminded of their pending condemnation. The law of sin and death stipulates that if a man sins, then death reigns. You're under the dominion of death. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from what? From the law of sin and death. So let me get this straight. You are under a law, and it basically says if you sin, you die. Is grace attractive to us when we know that? For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, did you know that it's a law? It's a law. This is legally binding. The same way that you were under the law of sin and death and just deserving, justly deserving of eternal separation from Almighty God, now legally you have access under the throne room of grace and you live by a higher law. The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. Now that makes The law sound bad, I understand that. But guess what strengthens sin? The revelation of the law. If you only have law, did you know that all you see is sin? That's all you'd see in your life is sin. If all you stared at was law and you did not have grace, all you would see was your sin. 
which, by the way, is supposed to be working as a schoolmaster to cause you to cry out to say, I don't want to see my sin anymore. I want to see your sinlessness. Grace is turning from your junk to his perfection and saying, I have no hope in my junk. I have hope in your perfection. Your righteousness is my only hope because you recognize that your unrighteousness will not legally get you access under the throne of grace. Legally speaking, you're a dead man, a dead woman. Legal pillar number five, God will not violate sub-jurisdictions. A priest is required to mediate in this matter of legal right. A man amongst the human race, an Adam, must stand in the gap and provide legal representation. Now this is a very interesting statement that I'm making here. The way the American government, and I don't want to give too many compliments to the way our government is functioning right now. However, the way it was originally set up was actually based on what's called the Hebrew Republic. And even the president or the king, they didn't know what it was going to be called at the time, was under the law. In other words, he was subject to the law. There was no man in any of the jurisdiction of the United States of America, the 13 colonies, that was above the law. Even the president was beneath the law. Where did they get that idea from? That, the one who leads is still governing and leading in accordance with law. And not one person can slide above it. God's the one that created this system. He's the one that is under the law. He chose it. We, didn't, we don't put him under the law. He chose to be under the law. He abides by the law. He doesn't say, thou shalt not steal, otherwise I'll send you to hell. And then he goes off and steals. He does not say, hey, thou shalt not murder. And then he goes out and murders. Interesting statement, isn't it? He doesn't say, hey, you cannot lie, otherwise I'm sending you to eternal damnation. And then he goes and lies. God is under law. Now get this. The concept of jurisdiction in America is of extreme importance. For instance, the President of the United States cannot tell me, according to our Constitution, unless it gets changed, how I raise my children, or how I should raise my children. You know that if my child is disobeying, the President of the United States is not allowed, though he has higher jurisdictional authority in the land of America, he does not have jurisdictional right to come into my home and spank my child for me. He cannot intervene, he cannot interpose, he cannot violate. That is property rights. That is jurisdictional right. That is not right. For me to come into your home and spank your child is just as wrong. Something wrong about it. Have you ever noticed that a child, if they're ever disciplined by someone else's parents, it violates something for them? Something that offends us as children. It's like, you're not my parents. You're not the one that should be able to do that. Now, the child should have a better attitude in the process. However, they're right. You see, there is a jurisdictional placement in which we are in. Now, if I left the house and I turned it over to someone who was watching the kids and I say, if so-and-so does such-and-such, then you can do this. And I even tell the kids, I say, in this situation, they are speaking and doing this for mommy and daddy. That's completely different. However, someone cannot violate my jurisdiction, my rights. You know where that came from? That's God. You know that we are in a mess down here? And yet, that mess must be solved legally from within. There needs to be a man from the lineage of Adam who will live perfectly. Righteousness must be established in us. God is righteous, but he can't just throw that righteousness down. 
It must be originated. It must be within the race. That is how his legal system works. And so as a result, we have ourselves a challenge here. Because no one is righteous. No, not one. There is no hope for us. But God so loved the world that he, he came and donned our clothing. The gospel is so astounding to think of what he has done because there was truly no other means of maintaining and fulfilling the law. The enemy might think he had God in a corner because he knew the law. What's funny is the master of lawlessness still plays with the law. He hates the law because that's what judges him. But guess what? He knows that everyone that commits any sin legally falls under his jurisdiction. So what's he doing? Tempting. Tempting. That is his legal access point. So God will not violate sub-jurisdictions. A priest is required to mediate in this matter of legal right. We need a priest But this priest needs to do something that no human priest can function and and actually do. Wait till you see the list of what this priest needs to pull off. A man amongst the human race and Adam must stand in the gap and provide legal representation. Adam, who is the figure of him that was to come. That's actually what it says in Romans 5 about Jesus. It's talking about Adam and he says Adam was merely a figure of the one who was going to come. We needed an Adam. Jesus is known as the last Adam. So it is written, the first Adam, the first man Adam was made a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit, a life giver. Death came through Adam. Life came through Jesus Christ. They were both, get this, Adam's men. God's legal means of rescuing us had to come through an Adam. And so the last Adam has come. Where the first Adam failed and brought down a whole kit and caboodle with them. The last Adam succeeded and brought the whole kit and caboodle back up. If therefore perfection were by the Levitical priesthood or the Old Testament priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek, a heavenly order, and not be called after the order of Aaron? If that was sufficient, if that priesthood could do it, we don't need another priesthood. But we do, we need a higher priesthood. And we got one. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew. This is Paul speaking. Now listen very closely because this is legalities of how we win those under the law and actually how we win those that are not under the law. This is actually what it says in 1 Corinthians 9. And unto the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might gain the Jews. To them that are under the law is under the law, that I might gain them that are under the law. Legal pillar number six, man must prove perfectly righteous to access the holy presence of God. Okay, we, we're already on the bad side of the law, so why does Eric whip up legal pillar number six? We're already sunk down the river. Why does it matter? We're not going to be. But these are legal pillars that God knows. And therefore, though we are so far from being able to maintain this, man must prove perfectly righteous to access the holy presence of God. Otherwise, where does he end up? Darkness. The scissor-cut kingdom. That's the place where those that are not perfectly righteous end up. This Adam must be without sin. If there is going to be an Adam that will stand in the gap and interpose and plead 
and do the work of an intercessor for this dying race of Adams, well, he's going to have to legally be without spot or blemish. This Adam must be without sin, holy and complete, without spot or blemish. He mustn't ever have transgressed the heavenly law. He must be as pure and spotless lamb, unblemished and innocent of any guilt. How many of us could stand in the gap? How many of us are going to be able to pull this off? I remember asking one of my children if they'd ever, you know, I was going through a little short list of bad behaviors, and the answer was, no. And all the other kids at the table laughed. It's so obvious. (laughs) We have violated the law. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of that glory, that manifest revelation of perfection that is only in God. But that's a legal pillar. And Jesus knew no sin. In him was and is no sin. He did no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He was and ever is the Lamb of God, without blemish and without spot. He did nothing amiss. Certainly he was a righteous man. The prince of this world had nothing, no legal grounds of condemnation in him. He was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He was just. Legal pillar dealt with. Legal pillar number seven. A legal representative must pass heaven's test. Now, for those of you that have been at Ellerslie and have heard the message canon, you actually understand what this means. But the entire Old Testament and the Old Covenant, the law, actually has a test for the prophet who will come for the mighty intercessor, for the savior, for the rescuer that is to come. And this rescuer, legally, as bizarre as this is, why does God make it even harder for himself? But he actually amps it up. Why? So that no false savior could ever be recognized. That we would never diminish the standard of righteousness and excuse it and say, well, it's close. The standard is impossible. Heaven's test This man must legally not just be of the race of Adam and the lineage of Adam and live with spotless purity, but he must in every regard pass the test. And this test, if you hear the message canon, which if you want access to it, just talk to one of our staff members or interns. I'm sure we can get it for you. But it is impossible. In fact, the word impossible is a gross understatement of what this is. In every regard, he must do everything dot and tittle to perfection. So I picked one scripture for you just to meditate upon because Psalm 22, as Jesus sits, is hanging upon the cross, what does he start with? What does he say? One of his last words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And what would every Jew hear? Oh, Psalm 22. That's Psalm 22. Jesus is saying Psalm 22. Well, look at what Psalm 22 says. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. Remember, he's on a gibbet. He's on two pieces of wood bleeding out his life and he's being mocked and ridiculed. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt and my tongue cleaves to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. Listen to this line. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, crucifixion, every bone gets out of joint. I may tell all my bones, they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. The Adam, the one of the lineage of Adam that must live perfectly, also must fulfill the heaven test. He must reveal Psalm 22. 
Crucifixion wasn't even invented at the time Psalm 22 was written. In every regard, Jesus, who seems to be the victim in this situation, is actually the one in control. He is the one accomplishing his errands. The enemy did not take Jesus. Jesus gave himself. He is fulfilling all righteousness, all legal requirements. All of it. Legal pillar number eight. God will not violate his own law to rescue the lawbreakers. Now, I know if there was ever a time, God, that you could just compromise and rescue all of us. I mean, if you truly love us, why wouldn't you just come and rescue us? Instead, what would God say? Nope. My perfect righteousness is only perfect righteousness when it maintains its perfect righteousness. And it's only perfect righteousness that can enter into the presence of God. God cannot violate himself. He cannot contradict himself. A just, satisfying, and equitable payment must be made by this Adam in order to legally redeem the lost race. So if he's going to legally redeem, which means to purchase or to buy a lost race, he has to do it equitably, which means payment has to be made, and it has to be a legal payment. He can't say, I'm going to give you $10. And the enemy looks at him and goes, $10? And he says, and by the way, I'm bigger than you. So give me what belongs to me. That would be called stealing. And God cannot steal. Isn't that a funny statement? But this belongs to him, not legally. Legally, we have transferred ownership papers over to the devil. And as a result, we have signed our name to legal documentation that says, I am of the prince of darkness. I sin, and therefore, I am of sin. I am of that kingdom. I participate in the realm of darkness. We might not even know what we signed. How many of us do that all the time? Those little check boxes on software that we're downloading, little do we know what we're signing away. We signed our life away, and legally, we do not belong to God. Now, there was a purchase at the cross, which changes that. However, this purchase must be equitable. It must be just payment. So in order to legally redeem the lost race, the law stipulates eye for eye and tooth for tooth. You always wonder what the benefit of that law is. It's like, well, God doesn't follow that law. You better believe it, he does. Listen to this. And in this case, the law will not be satisfied but with the blood of the criminal. The criminal's entire life, the criminal's eternal life. Therefore, this Adam must give up his entire life, his eternal life in exchange. What's at stake? It's not just an eye for an eye. It's a life. And get this, it's an eternal life that's at stake. What did Jesus give at the cross? He gave up his life, which is an eternal life, by the way. He gave up the highest possible price. He paid it. And no one can argue, including the devil. It was justly satisfied. That's amazing because we're talking about an entire lost race. And yet, the blood of Jesus, which is called precious, was sufficient payment. The life of God was given eye for eye, tooth for tooth, body for body, life for life. God cannot steal, and thus God cannot override the jurisdiction of the enemy of the devil and steal from him those children that are condemned under the law of sin and death. 
Heavenly justice demands due payment, equitable compensation, appropriate satisfaction of punishment. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. It's slave for slave, body for body. God satisfied the legal demands of his own law by giving up his own eye for our eye, his own tooth for our tooth, his own blood for our blood, his own body for our body. He became obedient unto death and thus gave up his life for our life. He took on himself the equitable compensation, the due payment for our sin, the just and satisfying punishment of our, for our disobedience. He paid it with his own body and blood, the perfect body and blood for all those in legal bondage. Legal pillar number nine. The way to the Father must be in the shelter of a perfectly righteous life lived. The human priest of the race of Adam that provides this payment and satisfies these legal and just demands is authorized by heavenly law to become the legal representative for all in Adam's lineage who come to him for help. This is a legal representation known as the priest. You have a high priest. Why do you think... Hebrews gets all excited about this point. All of us are like, I don't know why it's so exciting. You have a representative before the Father. Legal representative that if you are in his representation, you have access unto something that you have no business touching. The blazing holy presence of Almighty God. We have no right there in our own. He has right there. He has legal right and position. And he has the ability to share that position with us. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. How did you die? Well, you're in the old man known as Adam. And as a result, you died right along with Adam when he died. There's no life. It's like you almost inherited the balloon with a slit in it. You have no life. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death, not just for himself or for one of us, but for everyone. He tasted death. One man tasted death for everyone. Legal representation. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death death spread to all men, because all sinned, so... How many men did it take for death to enter the world and for sin to enter the world? One. You see how this works legally? One is a channel to bring it all down. And what does this last Adam do? For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. But the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. Legal, authoritative righteousness given to everyone who would believe. We are cleared from the just punishment of the law which is legally bound upon us because of one man who fulfilled all righteousness. And this one man says, um, believe in my work. Believe in my representation. Believe in what I have accomplished. Enter into its shelter. If you enter into its shelter, you will be counted righteous. You will be justified, acquitted 
of all the punishment that is justly hanging over you. But in Christ, it is satisfied. It is atoned for, is the word in Scripture. It is pacified. Justice is pacified. Wrath, pacified. And we are able to be found in the righteousness of Christ. My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. That's a legal representative with the Father. What's his name? Well, he's called Jesus Christ the righteous, or in this message, the perfect balloon. He's the one who never violated the law. He's the one that now has legal position and right because he fulfilled heaven's test. He was of the lineage of Adam. He can actually stand now on behalf. This is representative government. We elect Jesus as our king, and he is able to advocate for us before the Father. His righteousness is our righteousness. The mission impossible. Okay, just imagine you're God and you're looking down. Now, God never sweats. At least that's, I don't know that it actually says that in Scripture, that God doesn't sweat. But as far as in terror or anxiety or fretting or foreboding, no, none of it. God's perfectly confident in the future. He knows how things are going to unfold. He's in perfect control. I'm not at all concerned about it either, knowing he's up there. However, this would cause most of us to fret. We have what's called mission impossible. We have a lost race dying in the throes of death without any legal position out. It is an airtight case against us. And yet, this is mission impossible. When it says, for God so loved the world that he gave, it should say, that he sent forth his son to carry out the impossible mission. Legal mountains that had to be climbed by the extraordinary man. So I'm just going to call Jesus the extraordinary man because it's too small of a word. But just to call him a man, oh, this is extraordinary. First, God must use a man, a priest, a legal human representative, an Adam. Well, that's going to be sort of difficult because there isn't one that hasn't sinned. So how in the world are you going to pull off the rest of these things you're about to see with someone who is imperfect. He must be an Adam. But, as you'll see, this extraordinary man must perfectly match the Messiah test without the slightest flaw. This extraordinary man must perfectly match the most precise measurements of moral righteousness without the slightest flaw. This extraordinary man must satisfy the law's just punishment for criminal behavior of all those who have sinned the world over. So this guy needs to have payment. He's born a baby. He needs to have payment for all the just consequence. He must prove a ransom for many. Somehow he must redeem. How in the world is this man going to make such a payment? If you were to think about one man, one of us in this room, that is locked in the cage of eternal hellfire, basically, eternal condemnation, what would it cost to buy him out? I don't know, but I bet... The legal ramifications of that are quite high, and the enemy would hold you to every bit of it. And I don't know that even one of us in here would ever have that much in a hundred, maybe a thousand lifetimes to pay it. And that's one. But this is everyone. Well, I don't know what this guy's going to come up with to justly satisfy that demand. 
This extraordinary man must redeem all from the evil clutches of the devil, but he cannot steal in order to do it. Therefore, he must be able to pay proper, just remuneration for the redemption of all sinners. This extraordinary man must covenant with this redeemed congregation, but he cannot commit adultery because this congregation that is in sin is currently in covenant with death, in legal binding covenant. Covenant is a legal term. And yet, this man must enter into a new covenant in his blood with them. How in the world is he going to do it? Because he cannot commit adultery. First, he must somehow break their covenant with death, which is only accomplished through death. You read in Romans 7, the very beginning of it, it says the only way that a covenant can be broken legally is for death of one of the members of the covenant. That's how marriage is dissolved, basically. It's broken. Covenant is broken by death. And so, first he must somehow break their covenant with death, which is only accomplished through death, in order to free them to enter into a new covenant with him. But it doesn't help if he's dead. Or they're dead. We got a problem here. Somehow, death must annul the covenant, but then how do you enter into a covenant between two parties where one of them is now dead? This is an extraordinary plan. This man must sever these sinners from their root problem with sin. To do this, he must somehow get rid of their old man. But he cannot murder. But the old man must go. How do you deal with someone's old man and talk about something that God would love to come in and just kill? He can't just kill. He cannot murder. He can't violate his law to fulfill all righteousness. How does he do this? Well, by the way, if any of you haven't heard it, it's known as the gospel. It's known as the life of Jesus Christ imparted. Every one of those legal pillars, every one of those legal impossibilities was solved in the person of Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is not just a man. He is God. And the reason he did it perfectly is because he was God. But he lived the life of a man as we ought to live it. And thusly has dealt with the just requirements of the law. And if you make him your legal representative, if you allow him to be your advocate before the Father, then you will be given and bequeathed his righteousness, his just behavior, his sinless life will cover you. And it will be a cloak, a robe of righteousness that surrounds you. But it's more than just that. He doesn't just correct the fact that you are no, now no, no longer under the law of cut and die for the balloon. He doesn't just stick you in himself and say, oh, there, there. We were not meant to be flat balloons. We were not meant to continue throughout all of eternity to be merely dung for the garbage heap. We are meant to be restored and renewed, rebuilt, so that we can become as we ought to become. But the only way to become as we ought to become is to be clothed in his righteousness. And under this righteousness, in the clothing of grace, then his very spirit, his very life, his very grace enters in and begins to heal this balloon. It's called sanctification. And it begins to change this balloon that we are. He's the perfect balloon. And that's grace. Legal annulment of the power of death over us. Legal righteousness so that we can now be brought into the presence of God. 
legal access unto all that the Father has. Why do we have access unto all the Father has? Because Jesus has legal access unto all the Father has. It's called the inheritance. And what does he make available to us? Everything the Father gives him. Everything. We have legal access. I know it's preposterous. That's why it's called good news. In fact, the word good stinks. It's extraordinary, bewildering, befuddling news. Beyond anything we could ever dream of, ask or think. He has gone beyond it. But he has given us access to the Father. And what does the Father have? The Father has grace. So we're clothed in grace, the legal righteousness of God. Though we are undeserving of it. And then, because of the fact that Jesus has legal access unto the Father and we are in him, then we have access unto that which makes us whole again. It's called the Spirit of God, also known as grace. And now this grace fills us and we become channels of grace, vessels of grace, within grace. Grace protects us and gives us legal access unto the Father. But then grace fills our bodies and makes us new so that we are like Christ and we behave as Christ and we love as Christ and we're peaceful as Christ, we're full of joy as Christ is. And that's Christianity. It's grace. The law is not revoked. The law is fulfilled. The law is satisfied in Jesus Christ. And where are we? In Jesus Christ. And therefore, the law is satisfied for us. Not just for him. For us. Because of our legal position in him. How do we get that legal position? God says, believe. Look upon it. Take it. It belongs to you. I give the illustration of sticking a $20 bill up on the stage and saying, that's yours. You could hear me with your ear. You could acknowledge it later today. Someone could say, oh, didn't Eric give you $20? You could say, absolutely, true. However, if you don't take the 20, you don't have the 20. It's called reckoning. You take it into your account. If someone says, who's your legal representation before the bar of justice and perfect righteousness? Jesus. Jesus is my legal representative before the Father. I have no access unto the Father but through him. Where is your righteousness? Is it in what you do? Is it in what you can accomplish? Do you have any legal ability to get yourself out of your situation? To repair your balloon and get breath into it? To be a balloon as you ought to be? No! Well, just acknowledge it and turn to the one who can do it for you. It's that simple. Repent and believe. This extraordinary man must bring us to the Father. But to do this, he must first justify us and make us righteous. But without God inside of us, this is an impossibility. And God cannot be inside of us if we are not righteous. Well, this man must make a way for it. Okay, so we have the impossible situation. Let me read it again. But without, we need to be perfectly righteous to come unto the Father. But without God inside of us, without the air, without the breath in the balloon, we can't be as we ought to be. And God cannot be inside of us if we are not righteous. The breath cannot be held inside of us because we're not right. we got a problem here. We have to have air in us to get to the Father, but we can't have air in us because we have a cut. Woe is us! But this man is on an impossible mission, and he must make a way. How is he going to do it? He made himself the vehicle, the transportation device. He made himself the perfect balloon. And he made avenue and access. He's known as the door. 
we enter in through the door into him and his righteousness becomes our righteousness and therefore we can get to the Father. And therefore, the Father and the life of the Father, the life of the Son and the life of the Spirit can dwell in us. And we then can be made righteous. And we can once again be as we ought to be in Christ Jesus. It's a legal position. There is no way to be as you ought to be outside of Jesus Christ. No way. There's only one way to the Father, and that's by him. This extraordinary man must pull all of this off. This was his assignment. And he must do this without violating even one jot or tittle of God's holy law. He must do this with Satan and the rest of the children of darkness seeking to kill him. And he must do it perfectly in the one life that he has in which to do it. Wow! I love Jesus Christ. I am amazed and in awe of this man named Jesus. The law is a schoolmaster. You've probably heard that before. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. The law isn't bad. The law is righteousness. And that righteousness and that holy standard of God is what leads us to our need of Christ. That we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. Okay, so when you believe in Christ and you have faith in Christ, did you know you're no longer under the schoolmaster, which is what? The law. You're no longer under law. Well, what would you be under? You'd be under grace. You see, the way to access grace is not to get rid of the law. It's to embrace the full consequence of the law, to, to stare in its face and say, woe is me. I need Jesus. And then by faith in Jesus, we are justified by faith. We are deemed righteous in heaven's eyes, not because of our behavior, because of his. And therefore, we are no longer under the law. We are no longer under a schoolmaster. We have now been brought to the whole lesson itself, the whole point of it all, which is the person of Jesus. Law, that which sets forth God's eternal decree of what is perfect behavior, right action, and just consequence. More simply, that which reveals sin, the schoolmaster. Grace, God's loving and legal response. Now you'll understand why I, had to, I put legal in there. We know loving. We know it was loving. Do we know it was legal? He did not violate his law in order to accomplish it. His loving and legal response to the failure on man's part to demonstrate perfect behavior, right action, and the measures God has taken to rescue us from the just consequences of our error. More simply, that which rescues from sin. And grace has a name. It's Jesus. Jesus is what saves us. How are we saved? By grace through faith. What's grace? It's personal. It's a person. Jesus we are saved by the work of God, by the legal action of God, by the condescending, undeserving work of God. How do we access it? By faith. Believe. Under grace. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Listen to this second half. For you are not under the law, but under grace. You're in Jesus Christ now. You have his legal protection. Therefore, sin shall not have dominion over you. You have been translated out of that kingdom. You are now in the kingdom of his dear son, the kingdom of light. And you are not ruled and controlled by the devil the way you have been in the past. Newness of life. New creation in Christ Jesus. We get up and we dance over these things. But if you be led of the Spirit, 
you are not under the law. Oh, we don't want to be under the law. You're sick and tired of the law of sin and death. You sin, you die. I don't blame you. But it leads you to the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ Jesus, you know what you have access to? The spirit. It's known as grace. It's personal. And if you are led by the spirit, by Jesus, by grace, you are not under the law. Because you're in Christ by faith. You have access unto the Father. And the Father bequeaths to you everything you need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. That's how we live as Christians. But when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. You've been purchased. You were under the law, but you were redeemed. That we might receive, this is really exciting, the adoption of sons. Remember, you're all upset about the fatherhood being the, you know, the father being the devil. You're all disturbed by that. Well, I don't blame you. However, when this transaction in your life, do you know that there's legal authority given from one father to the next? And you become a child of righteousness, no longer a child of disobedience. And the spirit that used to rule in you, the spirit of this world, the spirit of the prince of the power of the air, spirit of Satan, it's now a new spirit that lives in you. It's a new life. And it's a life that esteems things up here. And there's a pleasure up here. No longer is it base. It's now heavenly. And your life can now please God instead of disappoint him. You are a son or a daughter of the king when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So here's Jesus' suggestion. Should I call it a suggestion or should we be more forthright and call it a command? When he started his ministry, it says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Repent? What's that? Well, there's multiple ways you could describe repent, but it means to turn, to change. Say you're in the kingdom of darkness. Well, you know what? Turn from your allegiance unto sin and give your allegiance unto the Savior. It also means to change your mind. If you have esteemed the fruit on the tree and say, you know, it's worth it. I don't care what the consequences are. And suddenly you begin to recognize the dire effects of sin and the law of sin and death and what you're under. You know why you're being awakened to it, how miserable your life is? So that you could change your mind on how you're living you might have been against Jesus up to this point, but change your mind, repent, turn from your old way. It also, another way of saying it is put off your old man, your Adam. You're in Adam. You're under the law of sin and death. By one man sin entered into the world, you're still in that man. Put off that old man. Change your mind. Turn from it. Throw it off as a husk. And give your life to the new man, Jesus Christ. However you need to translate that into your soul this morning, do it. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.
www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.